you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's pray. Father, as we worship you this morning, it is always our, our desire, Father, to give you the reverence and the respect that you really deserve. We want to honor you, Lord. We want to express to you our praise and our thankfulness because of your greatness, because of your kindness, your goodness to us, the gift of salvation, your presence in our lives, your word which you have preserved through time so that, Father, we may know you and that we may have understanding. Father, we have sought to honor you as we have sung together, really singing to you and, and then even to each other, proclaiming the truths of the word of God. We have spent time together in prayer, bowing before you, not only confessing our sins, but Father, asking for your help for ourselves and for others, for your blessing in the lives of so many. Father, we have given of our tithes and offerings as we desire, Father, to support the work that you have called us to do. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom to use and handle the resources that you've given us in a way that honors you in every way. And now, Father, as we come to what we often view as the main portion of our worship, where we focus more directly on all that you have said, the word that you have preserved for us that gives us understanding of life, understanding of the world, understanding of you, understanding of ourselves. We pray, Lord, that your word would always be very precious to us. Not so much, Father, in a sentimental way that we kind of have a superstitious appreciation for your word. But, Father, recognizing the truth that it is, that it is foundational and that it is to have a profound and deep effect on us, that it is that tool which is used by your spirit to change us, to change the way we think, change what we think, to change our attitudes, to change who we are, that we would become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that you would continue to accomplish that in our lives. And so as our habit, Father, we ask that you bless our time in your word today. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in, meek, in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also, also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves and see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Paul begins, again, as we've been dealing with for several months now, coming to a, a better and clearer understanding of this conflict that has arisen in this church, 
there's a division in the church. Uh, many in the church are beginning to move away from their loyalty to Paul. And again, remember that for Paul, it's not really about these individuals being loyal to him. His concern is they're embracing the truth of the word of God and living out the truth of God in their lives that he has given them. He knows he has taught them well. He's shown them the way. And now there are these men who've kind of moved into the church and their goal has been to supplant him for their own reasons. They were, they were wanting these individuals to be loyal to them. Uh, in fact, they were wanting them to be loyal to them almost instead of Christ. They, they were bragging about their credentials, perhaps about their experiences with God, that they were truly those who had spiritual authority, that Paul was, was clearly not the man that they thought he was, that he, that he wasn't as gifted as they were, he didn't have the, the kinds of credentials that, that they had, that he didn't have the kind of experiences they had, and they were just going on and on about all these things. And again, the goal was to, to get them off of Paul because I believe that they understood that their loyalty to Christ was because of what Paul had taught them. And so if they can kind of diminish Paul in their minds, it would be easier for them to kind of be moved off of Christ and the church would become very different. And so their, their lives, their, their maturity level as believers is being greatly affected. Uh, and they are in a sense beginning to drift from the word of God and from living lives as they ought to. So Paul then adds, again, that he's going to come again. He's coming the third time. Uh, but he says, all of a sudden, he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Th there's this requirement that, that's in the Bible when it comes to leveling charges against individuals of the wrong that they have done. But the Bible does talk about us dealing with individuals one-on-one, -on -one, and that really is the primary way uh, that we are to deal with differences and, and trouble. But there are times when there is sin in the lives of individuals that needs to be addressed. And, and usually those are things that are much more serious. They, they have greater consequences. And so there's this process that has to be followed where there has to be at least two or three witnesses. It just can't be someone just saying something because they thought they saw something or they think they know something, but there has to be basically a trail of evidence, so to speak, from these individuals. We see the same thing when it comes to church discipline that's, that Paul has written about before when he, uh, when he wrote in 1 Corinthians as well as what's going on here in 2 Corinthians. And they remember there was that man that was basically having physical relations with his dad's new wife. Uh, and it was being tolerated, and Paul basically says, what in the world is going on? You need to take care of this. Oh, you haven't. Well, let's do this right now. He needs to be out and kind of, you know, takes care of business for them. And so he's very disappointed on their refusal to deal with these kinds of situations. But even in church discipline, there's this idea that, that uh, someone's sin, in a sense, has to be established by a couple of witnesses so that it doesn't become kind of a weapon that's used to get rid of people you don't like or maybe to embarrass people you don't like. In fact, there's several processes. If you go through Matthew 18, it talks about this. And we have this in our, in fact, many churches, maybe most churches have this in their church document somewhere, you know, how church discipline is to be followed. And many times it's not, but, but, but it's in there. Um, they should follow it. That's, that's part of the problem maybe that they're having. But we do know this, is that if a person is, is if, if you know a person who's sinning, uh, a Christian is to reprove him in private. We already, already said that. that that's what... That's what God wants to have done. He, the, the goal is never to embarrass an individual. The goal is for the individual to repent, to confess, and, and then to change, you know, to move in the right direction. 
is, is to save that individual and maybe those around them from all of the negative consequences that can come because of sin. And so that's to be done. So basically, a church may practice church discipline all the time, and you never see it because it's handled in this way, and people respond. And that would be the norm, and, that, that, and that's how things should take place. Now, if that individual refuses to repent, then the one who confronts him does it again, but this time they bring a couple of others with them. Again, the goal is to let that individual know the seriousness of what's going on, that others are aware of the sin that's taking place and of its consequences. Again, the goal is to call the individual to repentance, to see this change. So again, this isn't about controlling someone. This isn't about being in someone's business, but in a sense it is. Uh, but it's for their sake and, and really, I would say, the sake of their family. That, that's what needs to be done. You know, it's so sad when you hear stories where in a church there's a, a marriage that's in trouble and many individuals know that marriage is in trouble. And perhaps several individuals know why that marriage is in trouble, and no one says anything to them. No one tries to help. No one comes in and says, and I know that's uncomfortable. Of course, it's awkward. Nobody wants to do that kind of thing. But let's just kind of change the scenario just a little bit. Let's just say that it's your son or your daughter, and they're in a church somewhere else, and they're having trouble. And there's not much you can do because of the distance you can't get there. And, and you know that they're going to a, a pretty good church. If, 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 if they're going to what we would think is a pretty good church, we have certain expectations of that church. And we would be thinking, isn't there anyone there that loves them enough that would at least try to help? That would, uh, would, that would be willing to be uncomfortable and talk to one of them or both of them kind of interject themselves into that family and let them know that you know there's trouble, that there's, that there's hurt, pain, all those things, and you want to help. And if you find out that church really refuses to do anything, would you be disappointed in that church? Of course you would be. In fact, you might even be angry because that's your kids, that's their, their family, and, and the cohesiveness of the family, the peace and all the joy, all the things are going to affect, it's all at stake. And imagine no one does anything and they end up divorcing and going their separate ways. And of course, all the fallout and consequences that will affect that family for decades, will, they'll be reaped. And all we're thinking is at least someone could have tried. See, that's why we need to deal with sin. That's really, the, that's the goal. It, it's not... How people paint this negative picture that, oh, you just want to be controlling and you want to make sure people don't do this and they do that and da-da-da-da. No, that's, that's not what it is. Believe me, i got better things to do with my time than to tell you how to live your life and what you eat with and what you drink out of and where you live and all the rest. Good grief, you do what you want. Right, but when it comes to these things, we care about each other and that's what we should be doing. Then, of course, if that individual refuses to repent, then comes, and this is where... It gets really uncomfortable at times unless, again, we are and we truly do love each other and understand what's happening. And that's then the church is told. The church as a whole is told. Now, one of the great benefits of that is, you know, that it immediately eliminates gossip because everybody knows. No, no longer are you going to have the situation where, you know, all of a sudden Robert gets together with Danny and says, do you know what's going on in so-and-so's life? And Danny says, well, yeah, we all know. Remember, we're all supposed to be praying for them. You know, right? Not, not, you know, it's not the gossip thing. 
We're praying for them. We're trying to, we want to help them. That's what the goal is. And, we, and you want those individuals who are having these difficulties to know. And I, when we've done it here, I've told them. I said, now you know that if you don't repent, the next stage is we have to tell the church. You know, it's not some secret like, oh boy, you know, I'm going to have to tell the church soon. I don't want them to know yet, you know, because, no, you tell them. You know, again, because we take it seriously. Yes, there is embarrassment with that, but the goal is not to embarrass them. But sometimes we need to be motivated to kind of get with it, and we know that. And so, if, but if that doesn't happen, if, if they still don't repent, then what happens is in the church basically I don't like using the term uh, excommunicate, but that's what we do. I've often said dismember, but that can really come across wrong uh, to dismember somebody. Uh, but the idea is we are, we're, we're, we're kicking them out of, of fellowship. But even then, the idea is to pray for them. We, we still want them to repent. And you know what does happen? It's happened before where individuals have, have turned back really to the Lord and gotten their life straight when it's gone that far. It doesn't always end up that way, but that also protects the church. It, 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 it's supposed to prevent schisms from taking place because we're not allowed, you know, we're not, we, it kind of eliminates the taking of sides. People can still do it because people are sinful. But once everyone knows we're on the same page and we know why we're doing it and we understand maybe the facts, that does help to prevent a lot of those kinds of problems in the church. And so Paul says when it comes to even what they're doing now with Paul, same idea. These guys are just throwing out these accusations about Paul and that you know, the church is responding in a wrong way to all of that. So Paul reminds them this, this principle. In fact, he, he brings it up again in 1 Timothy 5 uh, when it comes to allegations against church leaders. He doesn't say never accuse church leaders. He never says never hold church leaders into, uh, and hold them into account. No, that needs to be done. But he says don't receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. All right, so, th so these things need to be dealt with even in leadership. But again, this is not where someone says, ah, I, they made some decision I don't like. We need to get rid of them. You know, that, no, we, we need to follow what the scriptures say. We need to do it in a proper way. The sins that trigger the discipline process usually include serious doctrinal error, sins that threaten church unity, issues of purity, those, those kinds of things. Kind of as a side note on all this, Completely side note, sometimes Mormons will use this verse, or others like it, to argue along these lines. They'll say this, at least two witnesses are needed to establish something as true. The Bible is only one witness, so a second witness is needed. God provided the Book of Mormon as the second witness, thus establishing the gospel of Christ. If you ever had Mormons come to your house, I mean, I have, they don't come anymore, but when they, when they came, that was, that was what was said. You ask about the Book of Mormon, uh, and they'll tell you that this is what they're taught, that there needed to be a second witness, and they used this verse. Of course, the principal flaw in this argument is that it fails to recognize that the Bible really is a witness of 66 books. Uh, it's not just one book, it's 66. It's clearly that. Uh, and there's dozens of writers of the scripture. So if more than one witness is needed to establish the gospel of Christ, which is not even what that's talking about, it's about accusations, but nonetheless, we'll just kind of go with it. We still have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we have Paul, and we have Peter, and we have others. And so all those testimonies on separate scrolls, so to speak, all agree. It was years later that the accounts written by these different individuals were assembled together and bound into a single volume known as the Bible. 
So there's no basis for claiming this for the Book of Mormon, that it was needed as a second witness. So it's a flawed argument from the very beginning. So just kind of throwing that in there, because you know the Bible is used in a lot of ways by a lot of people, and it can be misused, and that's one of the ways that it's misused. But again, Paul goes on, and he says, So I warned those who sinned before all the others, and so I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. He said that before uh, to them, and, and he's saying this again. He's letting them know that right now the time for grace, mercy, and patience was over. So, you know, we are to be patient and tolerant with each other, but there's a time when that ends. Some people say, well, no, no, God's always patient. Have you read Revelation? And no matter what your views are, there is an end to these things. There's an end to sin. There's an end to death. There's a day we're looking forward to when there will not be sin any longer. All of the consequences of sin, gone. Sin will be completely eradicated. There is an end to God's patience. That's why there's a thing called a final judgment. There's a judgment for individuals, and they'll be judged for their sin before God. There is an end to that. So Paul's letting them know that the time for grace, mercy, and patience is over. Paul was not going to give them any more warnings. He was going to deal with the sinners at Corinth. Now some are thinking, some might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Paul's just a man. What is he going to do? He's going to come and scold them? Remember what we talked about last week. Remember, Paul is the one who clearly did miracles and signs and wonders to make it clear to them that he had God's power and it was a way that God authenticated who Paul was to authenticate the message. Not about you, but I don't normally run around trying to go against a real miracle worker. They have very real power. And this man's connected to God in very real ways. You just don't do that. One of my favorite stories from the Bible, it's a little morbid, but you know, remember there's that group of men who were upset with Moses in the Old Testament, Korah and his gang. And they were going to grumble against Moses. And so they came out and they were kind of basically giving Moses the business. And he says, we need to come back tomorrow. We'll deal with this again. I'm kind of paraphrasing. You know? So they come back the next day and they're giving Moses the business. And then he says this really strange thing. Well, you know, basically you're wrong. And don't be surprised if the earth, let's say, opens up and swallows you. And of course, you know what happens. The earth opens up and swallows them. Now, I don't know what everybody else was thinking there in Israel, but it's not like this was done in secret. But I would at least be thinking, you know, it's probably not a good idea to go against Moses. Because the earth opened up and swallowed a whole bunch of guys. What's even, to me, it's, it's hilarious and unimaginable that a little while later, you know, several weeks, whatever goes by, there's another group, another uprising against um, Moses. I'm like, hello? <laughs> Do you remember? Have you not heard? You know, well, I mean, that's just kind of ridiculous. So, you know, you just don't go up against Moses. You just don't go up against Paul. And Paul's letting him know. And again, Paul's not doing this because he wants to be the big bad boss. He really does love and care for them. He doesn't want to do this. He, he keeps hesitating. But there's a time when that's over. So he's going to come. And like a parent, he is not going to leave these, his children in a state of disobedience. He was going to come and bring discipline to them. He was going to bring them to the place of obedience which would put them in a position of being blessed by God. Their persistent failure to repent would bring action on his part. And again, it was for God's glory, it was for the church's purity, and sinning believers' well-being, and for the gospel witness. And so Paul was not hesitant to confront their sin 
in these churches that were under his care. And again, he had already rebuked them because of that man I mentioned before that was living in immorality. And so Paul loved them too much to ignore what they were doing. And we, you know, we hear that kind of phrasing when it comes to being a good parent, right? If you have a parent, if you have a child who's just insanely out of control and the parent just ignores them, it's not even trying, sometimes we thought, I mean, do you love your kid? I mean, you can't just let that go. That, that's going to become ingrained in their behavior. It's very embarrassing. It is already embarrassing enough if your three-year-old in the middle of a store throws himself on the ground and throws a temper tantrum. That's, that, that can be embarrassing. But that's nothing compared to your 14-year-old doing that. Imagine your 14-year-old kid throws themselves down and starts throwing a temper tantrum and kicking like that. I guarantee you people are looking and they're thinking some stuff. And it's not just about your kid. It's about you. Now, if you look real quickly at verses 3 and 4, we've mentioned this before, so I'm just going to say it really briefly and then move on. He says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we, for we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. The bottom line is, is he's been accused of being weak and that he's saying all these bold things because he's absent. And so what, when he shows up, he's now going to be powerful. And so they were accusing him of being inconsistent. None of that is true. Paul's already dealt with that. But I do want to get to the crux of, 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 a, of one of the most important things he says here, and that is verse 5. And he says in verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? In the Amplified, it reads this, it reads this way. Examine and test and evaluate your own selves to see whether you are holding to your faith and showing the proper fruits of it. Test and prove yourselves, not Christ. Do you not, real, do you not yourselves realize and know thoroughly by an ever-increasing experience that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you are counterfeits and disapproved on trial and rejected. So he says to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Now there's, there's a difference of opinion as to exactly what Paul is getting at. I, I don't think that it's as different as, as some people imagine it to be. Because when you're, when you're seeking to understand what he's saying, looking at the context, and then we look at application. You know, because there, there are many times there are many applications of the, of the word of God. Uh, there's usually only one interpretation. All right? Sometimes there can be some disagreement on exactly what that is. But we can be fairly close. But let me just kind of run through that a little, bit, a little bit of those things with you. So there's two main schools of interpretation as to what Paul's talking about when he says examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Some would say this. Paul is commanding the church to perform a self-examination to determine if they were true believers, with the implication being that some might not be genuine believers. In other words, this view holds that Paul is calling on his readers to examine their once-for-all justification. The second view is that Paul was speaking to believers only, and he was not telling them to examine themselves for evidence of salvation, but for evidence of their ongoing sanctification. That that's what he was trying to get at. We do know clearly that Paul is calling these people to examine themselves. I don't think that he was calling on them to examine themselves for the assurance of salvation. I don't think that's the context. 
It doesn't eliminate that as being application of, of how we understand this, but I don't think that's what he's driving at with them because I believe that a lot of his calling to them is a call to them to mature as believers, that they need to grow up as Christians and, and do some of the difficult things, and, and there needs to be fruit from their lives as believers. There needs to be evidence that you are growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And I believe the context is what, is what guides us in that thinking. Paul has affirmed his conviction, I believe, through both these letters that they're saved. He hasn't questioned their salvation anywhere. But even if Paul was telling them to examine themselves for assurance, he doesn't tell them to examine their, their works for assurance. In light of the plain teaching of Scripture, if anything needed to be examined, it would be the object of their faith. Have they truly trusted in Christ rather than some kind of system of works? In fact, one, one commentator said this, when it comes to this whole movement against Paul and where is Christ and, and is Christ approving of Paul and all these things, their, their thinking is, is Christ in what Paul is doing? Does he really have all this authority? One said, if Christ had not spoken in Paul, then since they had professed conversion under his speaking, Christ would not be found in them. But if Christ was found in them, it was conclusive proof that Christ had spoken in Paul and through Paul to them. I do believe this, though. It's quite possible, of course, that in speaking this way, Paul wished to convey to them the fact that he was not too sure of the genuineness of some of them, and therefore he desired to stir them up by this exercise of their conscience, and at the same time he was quite confident as to the majority of them. So I think basically he was calling them to, to, to maturity, but as you examine yourselves, we, as we all know, it is possible that an individual can discover that they have never exercised genuine faith in Christ. That they may have gone through the motions. They may be using the language. They may, be, they may have even adopted some behaviors of believers. But they don't know Christ. And so that can happen. And I do believe in countries like our country, it's much more possible. It's a bad sentence. But anyway, the idea is because there's so little um, persecution, there's really nothing to lose for an individual to even to pretend that they are a believer or, or to kind of go along with the crowd. In other countries where persecution is very severe, uh, there's a lot at stake. No one's, like for example, in Afghanistan, no one pretends to be a Christian. Either you are or you are not. No one's saying, oh, I think it'd be a good idea to, to kind of go along with the Christian church for a while. Your life's at stake. You can be kidnapped by your own family and killed for doing that. So that, that, that thing kind of doesn't really happen. But in our country, it is very possible. And some of us know that for a fact because we were one of those people. Well, maybe we thought for a long time we were believers and then came to realize one day, I've kind of been playing at church for a long time. And I, I don't really know Christ. And we're grateful at those moments that we have been awakened to that fact. John MacArthur says this. He's emphasizing the application of 2 Corinthians 13.5. And he says this. He says this test of, a, of an examination of oneself does not have to be a gloomy, morbid look inside yourself. Instead, it may simply consist of a series of questions you ask yourself, such as, have I experienced the leading, encouraging, and the assuring work of the Holy Spirit in my life? Have I experienced any aspects of the fruit of the Spirit? Have I known and shown love for other members of the body of Christ? Has my heart longed to commune with God in prayer? Do I have a love for God's Word and are its truths clear and compelling to me? 
If you can remember times when the answer to any of these questions was clearly yes, hey, you're most likely a Christian. So sometimes we think of examining yourself and looking at your life as always this kind of a morbid thing where you're, trying to, you're looking for all this evil. Well, it, it, I guess it could be, but, it, but we should not be looking at this like dread. The idea, if you think about it, is really the same when it comes to many other things we do in life where we want to be evaluated to see where we are at. In fact, in most jobs, I know that it can change, but in most jobs, there's an evaluation of your performance. Now, from the company standpoint, they do want to weed out the weak ones. They do want to weed out those who aren't very productive. Yes, there are times that there may be a boss there who doesn't like you, and he's going to use that as a way to get rid of you. That can happen. But, you know, if we kind of look at, the, if we kind of level at the playing field and kind of believe the best as to what's going on, the goal really is to help you to advance in the company, to do better. This is where you're weak. This is where you can, you can do better. We can help you with this, or we can help you with that, so that everybody is much more successful, because the company definitely wants to be successful. But they actually want you to be successful, because they also know that if you're more successful, they're more successful. And so there's kind of that mutual thing that's moving forward. So this idea of evaluation is not always kind of a dread thing, like you're just always in trouble. Again, if you think about sports, I've used this a lot before, when it comes to any kind of a coach, you know, a, many coaches, if you heard the way they talk, a lot of times can sound really very negative because they're always looking for something wrong, right? Well, you didn't do that right. You need to do it this way. But that's kind of what they're paid for. The coach that actually finds more wrong with your performance is a better coach. Now, he can, he can communicate in a bad way. But the last thing you want is when you say, well, we got this great coach and he's always telling us how great we are. Yeah, but you've lost all your games. Is, is the goal to win? Well, we, we would like to win. Well, if all he does is tell you positive things, you're not going to win anything. Right? He needs to be at least constructively critical. You know, and that's kind of what happens. And, you know, I've coached high school football for 40 years. And it's, you got to be negative a lot. In a very, and you try to do it in a very positive way. And sometimes you have to, you know, I, I even told a kid once, I didn't know his mother was at practice. And he was a decent player, and I was really getting on to him because when he, when he was doing things the way that I told him to and had taught him, he was a really he was a good defensive lineman. And in this one game, he kind of went off the rails and was doing his own thing. And so I was kind of scolding him. And what I not only did I not know his mother was at practice, she was actually right there in the stands next to where we were at. And so I'm kind of getting on him. And I said, "Son, I said just so you know, when you play football, sometimes you are just." Plain pathetic. And I said it pretty loudly. <laughs> he goes, thanks, coach. My mom's right over there. <laughs> so I didn't want to miss a beat. And I said, well, then you need to explain to your mother why I said that. Because you are pathetic. <laughs> I said, but when you do it the way I tell you, you are incredible. Tell her that too. He said, yes, sir. When it comes to this, when it comes to examining your life, you know, that's not just, Paul's not just being philosophical. I think it was Socrates, I think it was him who said that an examined life is not worth living. And there's a lot of truth to that. If you just live your life and never think about your life and ask yourself questions, man, that can lead to some trouble. When it comes to examining yourselves, one individual, I think it was A.W. Tozer, he said this, the unexamined Christian life lies like an unattended garden. 
Let your garden go unattended for a few months, and you will not have roses or tomatoes, but weeds. And an unexamined Christian life is like an unkempt house. Lock your house up as tight as you will, and leave it long enough, and when you come back, you will not believe the dirt that got in from somewhere. An unexamined Christian life is like an untaught child. A child that is not taught will be a little savage. It takes examination, teaching, instruction, discipline, caring, tending, weeding, and cultivating to keep the life right. So Paul tells us to examine ourselves. So let me ask you a question. Simple question, one you probably can already tell is coming. Have you or do you examine your life as an individual? Do you examine your life as a father? Do you examine your life really as a Christian, which encompasses all of that? I mean, do you think about your prayer life? Do you find yourself where maybe it was 10 years ago, and maybe you forgot you said this 10 years ago, but you thought to yourself, you know, I do need to make sure that I pray more. Do you? Was there a time in the past when you said, you know, it's going to be my goal to make sure I read my Bible, maybe not every day, but five days a week, I'm going to read my Bible. Whatever happened to that promise? Some may do that. There's a lot who, eh, well, it's kind of fallen off by the wayside. Well, it's been falling off to the wayside for 10 years now. Or whatever. Time goes by pretty quick sometimes. And next thing you realize is, yeah, it's been a while since you've done those things. How do you treat your husband? How do you treat your wife? When you examine your life as a Christian, these are some of the questions that we must ask ourselves. How do you treat your coworkers? What is it that upsets you? Why do those things upset you? Are you impatient? Why are you impatient? How would you rate your influence on others? Do you encourage others spiritually? Are you now more disciplined and self-controlled than you were five years ago or 10 years ago? Are you gentle? Are you kind? Are you experiencing peace? Do you have joy? Are you bored? Are you restless? Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone. And also we are to strive for holiness in our life because without it we won't see the Lord. Are you bitter? Or do you have bitterness in you? Are you happy? And when I say are you happy, I don't mean we evaluate that in terms of your income, what you possess, and how people treat you. Are you happy? Are you happy in your life based on your attitude, based on the way that you think, based on what you do? Do you complain? How often do you complain? How do you handle disappointment? Are you slow to forgive? Or are you slow to forgive certain people? Or maybe are you slow to forgive certain things? Do you get over things? What do you make a big deal about? Do you love God? How do you know you love God? Do others know you love God? We need to ask ourselves, and these, can be, these are hard. That's why we don't like to do this. Maybe that's why we don't do it. Who wants to have to face this? I don't have to answer these questions. Because sometimes, and maybe it's true for a lot, I don't know. But, for, I can, but I, you know, just thinking about my own life, I can think back when I was in my 20s, my 30s, my 40s. Yeah, this would not be a good thing. Because sometimes what would happen is, is you know, if someone said, well, are you reading your Bible regular? Uh, no, not really. Imagine someone saying, have you ever? 
Oh, so you've made no improvements? And then you don't want to be the individual who says, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the same guy I was 10 years ago. So you're not more like Christ? Because we should be more like Christ. I've been a believer, well, I've been a believer now for 50 some years. I should be more like Christ. I, I'm not as much like Christ, I, I know, as I should be. But I should certainly be much more like Christ now than I was when I was 50. That was 14 years ago. I, I should definitely be much more like Christ now than I was when I was 30. Because that was 34 years, gosh, that's a long time ago. 34 years ago. If I'm not more like Christ, what's going on? There's no one to blame except for me. I, mean, I, I want to blame others, but I really can't. And so we need to do this kind of thing. We need, we need to take this very seriously. Sometimes we think, when we have, you know, we're, maybe we're feeling a little remorseful, we have some regrets, and we wish we did some things differently with, in raising our kids. Maybe we wish we did things a little differently in our marriage. So what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the day when you've been married for 40 years? I said, yeah, I wish I had done some things differently. Well, why don't you do that now? Why don't you ask yourself those questions now and, and start the change? I, I really, I'm convinced you'll have no regrets doing that. But you will have regrets if you don't. Deathbed confessions sometimes can be very enlightening. There's... In many books I've read about those things, there are certain things people never say on their deathbed if they're, if they're, you know, kind of aware and conscious. No one ever says this. You know, I wish I had worked more. I wish I spent more hours at the office. I wish I spent more time on my hobby. No, what the, almost always, I wish I spent more time with the ones that I love. I wish I had expressed my love to more of my friends. I, it, goes, it always comes back to these relationships that we have with individuals. And I would say it begins with the relationship that we have with God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be that person. I already know. I, there's already regrets in my life. There's already regrets I know that I can't change. So let's say that I have 50 regrets. I don't know how many I have. I really haven't tried to number them. That might be depressing. But let's say I have 50 regrets. Well, I don't want to be, I don't want to die in 20 years and have 100 regrets. Maybe what I could do is have fewer regrets and maybe work on some of the regrets that I have. And, and I know I can't do this on my own. I do need the help of God. Just so happens this is the business that God is in. He will help you to examine your life. He will help you to change. There's one thing I've known that's, that, that can be true, and that would be this. So if I was, if you ask yourself, if I ask you right now, is there at least two things in your life that you should change as a Christian? What are they? Most people do not draw a blank. Now, you may not say it out loud, but usually immediately there are certain things that come to your mind. Immediately. They might not be actually correct. There may be something else that's worse or something else you need to do. But immediately something will come to your mind. Can that not be God? Can that not be the Holy Spirit waiting for you to ask that question or to think that question? And boom, you know. If, 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 you are, if, you, if you are in a state of constant turmoil and tension with your wife or your husband, and you both claim to be Christians, and it's been going on now for, let's, let's say, months, 
And I ask you, if there's anything that you can do or that you should do different as a Christian, what would that be? There's a pretty good chance the very first thing that pops in your mind is I need to get along better with, or I need to treat her better, whatever, it's there. Can that not be the Holy Spirit of God? You may say, well, that's just my guilty conscience. Can God not use your conscience? He created us. He lives within us. You want to say it to your conscience? Say it to your conscience. Don't ignore your conscience. And as our conscience should be influenced and framed and shaped by the Word of God, maybe we should depend upon our conscience a little more. Remember the Bible says to not lean on your own understanding, which is true, but he doesn't say to completely abandon it. We have an understanding of Scripture, an understanding of ourselves, and I want to lean on that as it's formed and shaped by Scripture. And as I examine myself, and I may not be all that successful in being able to improve these facets of my life that I know need to be worked on, but I can improve some. One of the greatest joys I have in coaching football, even though I enjoy coaching really talented kids and watching them succeed greatly on the field, and that is a lot of fun. But there are some kids, because I've coached at a pretty small school most of my life, there are some kids that they, they wouldn't even be on a football team at another school. The coach would just say, you need to do something else. But we let them stay. And there's been times when I've coached kids who, even though a lot of them still don't know their right from their left, it, it's a real challenge for some. And they just don't have the size, the strength, the sp they don't have anything. But to be able to coach them so they can improve and get better and get better to where maybe if they stick it out, by the time they become seniors, they still aren't going to start, but they can be sent in the game, not when we're winning by 40 points, not when we're winning 50 to nothing, but they can be inserted in the game when it still really counts. And, and to see the joy and the happiness they experienced, the sense of fulfillment, because they would have never made it to that point if they had not stuck it out through all those long, hard, boring practices for four years. And it's a lot of, it's, a, it's great to see that. So they didn't make a lot of improvement. Their names would never be in the paper. They're never going to be a superstar. But there's a sense of joy and contentment, and contentment not only within themselves, but with their family and some of their friends, that for some of them will carry for the rest of their lives. And so when it comes to you and I, God's not calling you and I to be super famous, well-known Christians. He's not concerned that you have influenced 500 people in your life. You may only be able to influence five, but you can make a huge difference in the life of those five people. And you can live a life that is honoring to the Lord. And the Lord will reward you for your faithfulness. And part of our faithfulness is encapsulated in asking ourselves, am I living right before God? Am I showing the maturing fruits of a believer? Amen. If I'm not, Lord, please help me. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace and really for your incredible <laughs> patience. Because, Father, for many of us, maybe most of us, if your acceptance of us was based on our ability to produce the fruit that you demand, many of us would be outcast by now. 
If your love and acceptance for us was, and your continuing love and acceptance was based on our being able to produce <coughs> fruit as mature believers, we'd be orphaned by now. But Father, you are good, you are gracious, understanding, and patient. Father, help us to never think lightly of that. And Father, we ask that you would help us to examine ourselves. I pray, Lord, that there would be deep conviction of those things that we need to work on. Lord, I know that there are many that incredible joy will come their way, not only as they improve as a believer, but when they see that translated into the positive effects and influence they can have on those they love dearly, where there's a sense that they have truly helped others, whether it's small or big ways, there's a great sense of, of contentment that comes almost becomes a, 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 the foundational part of joy that really livens their life. Pray, Lord, that we would not just, not just be filled with shame as we think about our lives, but with hope. Because, Lord, you've not withdrawn your spirit from us. You've not withdrawn your word from us. You've not withdrawn your presence from us. But as the psalmist says, a broken and a contrite spirit, you will never turn away. And so we pray, Lord, that we would long for and hunger for a life of great joy and even happiness and recognize, Lord, that it comes from you and this growing relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would be patient with us a little longer. We ask, Lord, that we would pray for each other a little more faithfully, that we would encourage each other along the way, that, Father, we together can attain the joy that comes from our salvation. Father, for those who have lived life and find themselves on the short end of the stick, that they maybe realize they don't really know Christ. Maybe they're afraid to find out that they don't know Christ. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would gently prod them, encouraging the Lord to ask the difficult questions and to face the truth and the answers squarely. I pray, Lord, they find that they have shortchanged themselves because they have not believed in Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would enable them to overcome any embarrassment they may have and they would give their lives wholly to Christ and they would receive the gift of salvation that you've promised to us. And we pray that their joy would be full. And as always, Father, we thank you again for your presence in our lives and your willingness to communicate to us the truth. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.